We are here to worship, right? I mean, that's our primary purpose. I mean, it's good to see faces. It's good to fellowship. It's good to study the Word of God. But through that, uh, we're empowered. We're uh, motivated, inspired uh, to worship God. Please turn in your Bibles as we continue in worship to 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, today, when we're done today, we'll be about halfway through this letter. 22 messages halfway, so 44 is what I'm shooting for. Just kidding. We're, we're getting faster. We're going to do five verses today, verses 8 through 12 of chapter 3, primarily because Peter's quoting from Psalms here. So we're really doing two verses with some, with some psalm that Peter adds in for us. So I want to remind us that who Peter's talking to. Uh, how does he refer to us in verse 1 of the letter? Anybody remember we are, or who he's writing to, which includes us, are elect exiles. He had that E-E, no, in Greek it's not that, so I can't say that. To those who are chosen by God, elect, chosen by God uh, to be his people uh, and to receive an eternal inheritance but who must also, for a time, and for us that time is now, we must live and minister, uh, be productive, I would say, follow God's calling for our lives in this world. And Peter's telling these, uh, the word we use, the main word, Christians, both in his day and ours, how we're to do that. This is how we elect exiles are to live and minister in this world which is not our home. And last week we finished a section about uh, life in uh, life of submission, living in submission. Since chapter 2, verse 13, Peter's been instructing and encouraging in this area of submission. Verses 13 through 17 of chapter 2, he addresses Christian citizens and holds us, uh, tells us to submit to governing authorities. Then in verses 18 through 25 of chapter 2, he, he writes to servants and tells them to submit to uh, just and even unjust masters. And he, and he gives the example of Jesus, uh, his submission and his unjust suffering. Then in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, he addresses Christian wives. He shows them a, a way of submission to their husbands that can lead to winning their husbands if their husbands aren't saved, uh, lead to winning them to Christ. And finally, in verse 7, he focuses on husbands. He says, as those who are being submitted to, you must live with your wives in an understanding and an honoring way. So that's what we've been looking at recently. Now as we come to verse 8, there's a transition. Peter moves from addressing specific groups of people about the specific topic of submission to addressing all elect exiles, all Christians, uh, about righteous living. As we walk through the rest of chapter 3, uh, both this week and in weeks to come, we'll see Peter's theme is, is suffering for righteousness' sake. And in these first five verses, 8 through 12, he's setting the stage by describing righteous living for all, for all Christians. Now up front, 
I want us to, to get this in, because anytime we talk about, anytime we give lists, which I'm going to do, which Peter does, of think this is what you're supposed to do, we start going, okay, this is, this is, what, I'm, this is what God, this is what's going to make God happy with me. This is how I'm going to earn something from God. That's where our mind goes. And so right up front, I want to say, uh, righteous living is different from righteousness. Righteousness is what Christ gives to us as a free gift. We are declared righteous by God. But what righteous living is, is to be living based on who God has already declared us to be. So this is a description of who God has already declared you to be. You're not earning anything by doing these things. You're just being all that you could be, all that God wants you to be. And so in verse 8, he begins, finally, all of you. Remember, he's been speaking to specific groups, and he says, all of you. Peter, Peter's written to different groups about submission and suffering. Now, finally, he's writing to all of us. So if you were tuning, you're not a wife, and you were turning out at that part, or a husband, and you're turning, tuning out at that part, Peter says, come back. Now I'm talking to all of you. What follows applies to every elect exile, every believer in Jesus Christ. This is what you and I uh, uh, need to do. This is who we need to be as we live and minister in this world. And the first thing we find in verse 8 are five relational attributes of righteous living. In verse 8, Peter writes, finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Notice that these are not commands for how we should behave externally. Instead, they're internal qualities, uh, characteristics, attributes that manifest themselves mainly in relationship with other people. Peter's saying, as a follower of Jesus Christ, this is who you should be. This is what you should look like. This is what God desires you to be. This is, at least in part, what righteous living looks like. And from these five attributes, I knew there was a problem. My, it's blurry, so now I can see it. Okay. These are long-distance glasses. I could see you. Now you're blurry. I'd rather see that. Oh, I'd rather see this. Ah. Uh, and from these five attributes will flow the behavior, uh, what we should do that Peter focuses on in verses 9 through 11. So Peter is saying these are attributes that all Christians should have as we relate both to one another and to the world around us, as we live in this world as elect exiles. And what I want us to do is look at each one of these individually. We're going to take some time uh, to do a little word study and consider what these attributes mean for us as we live and minister in this world. Okay? You're ready for it? First, we have unity of mind. Unity of mind. Finally, all of you have unity of mind. This relates specifically to our relationships with one another in the body of Christ. It's not possible to have unity of mind with those in the world. As Paul writes, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. We can't have unity of mind with those who are hostile to God. But we can, we ought to have unity of mind with those in the church, with one another, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, what exactly does it mean to have unity of mind? Well, the phrase 
unity of mind, is one word in the Greek, compound word, homophron. And I put the, if you have the notes, I put the Greek words in there just for sort of fun. Because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain each one of those as we go through. Homo, meaning the same, and uh, fron, meaning the mind. So it literally means to be of the same mind, to be in harmony with one another, to be like-minded, to have a common mindset. Now that doesn't mean that we're all, uh, as Christians, to be mental or even spiritual clones of one another, that we must uh, all act think and act in the same way about all, all things. We each have our own tastes and preferences and gifts. One of the things that both Paul and Peter uh, emphasize in their letters is that for the good of the kingdom of God, we uh, differ as people. We differ in our gifts specifically. Chapter 4, uh, Peter will write, in verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Peter then goes on to describe how God gives different gifts to different people. So having unity of mind doesn't mean we're all the same. There are all kinds of a variety in the body of Christ. But it does mean that to be united, that we're to be united in the essential truths of the gospel of the Christian faith. As Christians, we're to share common beliefs and values. As a church, we have, these are our core values. This is our mission statement, and it all comes from God's Word. You can look it up on the website to get the verses and stuff. And these are, these are the things we are to unite around. God's Word, our core values. We don't have to have this, uh, share the same political views, We don't have to share the same tastes in music or movies. We don't have to uh, drive the same kind of cars, live in the same kind of houses. We don't even have to do ministry in the same ways. But we do share the same Word of God and the same indwelling Holy Spirit. I think that's the crucial thing there. Uh, We are able to be united in mind because we all have the same Spirit given to us when we come to Christ. So we can, we can strive to be like-minded in the things of God. We can have the same mind about who God is, what God has done to create and save uh, His people through His Son, Jesus Christ. We can also be like-minded in our understanding of God's purpose for His church. This unity of mind should cause us to work together as God's people for His purposes here in Riverside and throughout the world. This is what Jesus, in John chapter 17, prayed for His disciples. There's a place, I I, I don't have it here, but Paul also prays for this. So Jesus and Paul prayed for it. So it it seems to be a a thing that we might struggle with. Jesus says, The glory that you've given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. We're to be one. We're to be united in mind so that we can work together for God's purposes, so that, so that when the world sees our unity, they'll see something different. They'll see that we're united uh, in the love of Christ, and they too want to share in that love. 
So the first attribute is unity of mind. And each attribute that follows sort of contributes to that unity. Second, we have sympathy. Finally, all of you have sympathy. Sympathy is the Greek word, and this one's easy, sympathies. And literally means having a fellow feeling. That is feeling what others feel. As Paul wrote to the church in Rome, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. We are to identify with the feelings of other people. We're to have empathy and compassion. We're to put ourselves in the shoes of others. And this applies to those in the church and those outside the church as well. We're to have sympathy for those in the church as they live as fellow exiles in this world, facing the difficulties, the hardships, the pain and sorrow of this life. And we're to have sympathy uh, for those in the world, those who struggle with many of the same difficulties, but they struggle without Christ. So we're to have sympathy for all people. Now, I must admit, uh, this is, of all of them, maybe that tender-hearted one too, because it's related, we'll get to that, is difficult for me. I struggle in this area, not trying to be sexist here, but I think many men struggle in this area. This is something that seems to come more natural to women than men. Do I get an amen? Amen. But notice, Peter makes no such distinction. I just invented that, right? That's that's me. All who are in Christ, men and women alike, are to be sympathetic. And it seems to me that the first response of true sympathy will be prayer. As Paul encourages Timothy, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intersections, and thanksgivings be made for all people. As we feel what others feel, as we take their needs to God like they were our own needs, we can pray for one another. We can pray for Phyllis Thompson as she experiences uh, some extreme pain, back difficulties. We can pray for the Cates family who've recently lost a loved one. We can pray for the kings as they uh, care for their aging parents. And so, so much more. We can and should pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ as they face challenge, the challenges of life. We can pray for them like we're facing those same challenges. We can feel for them. And sympathy should also drive us uh, to pray for those who do not know Christ. Remembering that we too were once lost without Him. We can pray fervently that God will draw them to Himself. We can pray for opportunities to share with them the joy of knowing Christ. Because along with prayer, our sympathy for people should cause us to act. To respond with sensitivity to people's needs. Gently helping and encouraging them. Not necessarily having the perfect words, even if there are such things but being there with them and for them in their times of need. Being willing to listen and truly hear what they're saying and how they're feeling. That's what it means to have sympathy. And just a note, it takes time and it takes effort. So we have unity of mind, sympathy, and 
we add to that brotherly love. Finally, all of you have brotherly love. That phrase, brotherly love, is the familiar Greek word philadelphos, which uh, we get Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. It's a, it's a family-feeling word, a word that means loving affection. And this is probably directed towards uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ again. We're to love them, feel affection for them, be fond of them. We're not to view one another as strangers or even mere acquaintances or even as distant relatives. We're to view one another as close family. And we're to care for one another like we care for family. We see this modeled for us in the early, early church. Acts chapter 2, right there at the beginning. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing in them the proceeds to all who had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I was listening to the radio recently and somebody was trying to use this passage or quote talked about this passage uh, to promote a political agenda, specifically socialism. They say that the Bible teaches that society in society we must have all things in common. But that's not what we find here. This is not a government agenda. This isn't a government policy or a government program. This is a church program. And more than that, it's a family program. It's, it's family meeting the needs of family. They shared possessions. They shared meals. They met together in their homes. They worshiped God together. They had brotherly family love for one another. And when the world around them saw the love that they shared with one another, they liked it. It was attractive. It caused them to look upon Christians and then to God with favor. And in that environment, God caused, uh, uh, enabled the church to grow. Love for one another is crucial in drawing people to God who loves us and them. As Jesus said in John 13, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So we're to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and add to that a tender heart. Finally, all of you have a tender heart. The phrase tender heart is one word in the Greek. Anybody want to give that a shot? You splagnos. Okay. I actually uh, don't speak Greek, and so some of these words I'll, you can search on, what's that thing called? Computer? Yeah, Google and say how to pronounce this Greek word, and there are people that have done that for me. So that's my best effort, use splagnos to emulate those that do speak Greek. It's similar in meaning to sympathy. It means to be compassionate. It has the idea of experiencing deep, uh, even pity for another. It's not a word about behavior, but about feelings, your insides, uh, Literally, your innards, your belly. The literal translation of the Greek here means feel, to feel generous in your belly. Peter's saying we're to have deep, belly-felt compassion, sympathy for others. 
as we look at those in the church and in the world, and we see people experiencing difficulty and pain and sorrow, our response should be real, deep, felt compassion. Pity for them. Pity in the, in the compassionate sense, not, you know, that can be a negative thing as well. Almost anyone can manufacture actions that look compassionate. I think people often do this. I think, uh, uh, especially when other people are looking. They want to be seen as compassionate, as merciful, as loving people. And you can manufacture actions. But that's not what Peter's addressing here. Peter is saying that those who follow Christ are marked by a true tenderness for their fellow man. Now, this word is only used one other time in the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, where Paul gives us an application for the tenderhearted. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Peter says, uh, Paul says, the tenderhearted will forgive. They're forgiving people. The tenderhearted feel compassion. They feel pity, sympathy for others, and therefore they will forgive them. And Paul gives us something else here. Uh, the origin of our tenderheartedness and thus our forgiveness is the knowledge that God in Christ forgave us. When we look at others who've wronged us, we're to remember how much we've wronged God. And His forgiveness for us is unconditional forgiveness for us who've trusted in Christ, should move our hearts to tenderness and empower us to forgive as well. So we're to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and finally, a humble mind. Finally, all of you have a humble mind. This phrase is another one of those long Greek words I couldn't pronounce. Tapanophron. That's my best shot. This again is a compound word. The first part, tapaneo, tapeno, means to, to make, to be made, or to bring low. And, the sec, and notice the second part has the same ending as homophron, fron, which means mind. So we're not only to have unity of mind, that's sort of a team effort. We have to join in that together. But we're to have a humble, a lowly mind, which doesn't mean... We take what others have to say with no consideration for truth, for reality. Our minds are to be humble, not dead. However, humility of mind is crucial if we're going to ever have unity of mind in the body of Christ. Being humble, be, because a humble mind is open to the thoughts and the ideas of others. Whereas a non-humble mind believes that, that they have it all figured out. They've got the market cornered. When they speak to you, they don't really want to have a discussion. They don't really want your input. They're just uh, seeking to give you their uh, thoughts, their input, what they believe you should do or be. They present their ideas in such a way that leaves no room for discussion, really, unless you want to move into conflict with them. But a humble mind is different. In Romans, Paul describes the humble mind like this. Chapter 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. A humble mind doesn't think of himself or herself more highly than they should. 
but they think of themselves with sober judgment, really in a realistic way. I am a creation of God. I'm under God. We understand that even my faith is a gift from God. I think our mind is humbled when we realize that we are utterly dependent on God for all things. For life, for breath, for intelligence, for emotional stability, for faith, for safety, and more. And we're going, to, we're, we're going to talk more about our dependence on God in all things, but first I want us to look at the rest of this passage. Flowing from verse 8, with all its inner trans, trans, transformation, comes verse 9. In verse 8, Peter is saying, these are the inner relational attributes all Christians are to have, all of you. Then in verse 9, and following in verses 10 through 12, quoting Psalm 34, he says, this is at least one way, probably the most radical way, these internal attributes will manifest themselves in our lives. Peter doesn't mess around, he just cuts to the chase, okay? Uh, he's, he's talked about husbands and wives. He's talked about some other things. And maybe it's easy enough to be united and sympathetic and loving and tender and humble people with those who love us, with those who want what's best for us, within the family of God, within our own family maybe, or maybe not. Maybe we can do that. But Peter does something else. Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gives us a radical call to righteous living. I think he goes there, so we'll need to go to where we're going to go at the end of the message. You'll understand that when we get there. Here it is in verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. So following the eight attributes of verse 8, Peter gives what is certainly one of the most difficult commands in all of Scripture. And notice it has two parts. First, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. I think we know we got a pretty good handle on what evil is, right? We've all experienced it. Maybe we've all done a little bit of it. Something wicked or bad, wrong, sinful, harmful... And reviling refers to insults or slander, to speak evil against someone. So when someone does, okay, get this, when someone does or says something evil against you, Peter says, you are not to return the favor, you are not to repay in kind, you are not to do or say anything evil against them. And that would be hard enough, right? I don't know about you, but when someone does or says something against me, when I'm hurt or insulted, my natural instinct is to return in kind, to do the same to them. So I consider it a victory, a sign of how godly I am, if I just do nothing, if I'm able to turn and walk away. But that's not the end of the command. Peter also says, on the contrary, Uh, bless. Bless those who do or say evil against you. 
And what does it mean to bless? It means uh, to speak well of, to praise, to want what's best for. So when it comes to those who do and say evil against you, we're to speak well of them, to praise them, to want what's best for them. Uh, Peter, have you gone off the deep end? Are you really, are you kidding here? No, in fact, he says, for to this, blessing those who do and say evil against you, you were called. This is a calling that God places on all of our lives. This isn't a special calling for special Christians with special gifts. This is for all of us. We're called to live this way uh, seriously. Look back at chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, where Peter says something very similar. But if when you do good and suffer for, uh, for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Peter says, enduring suffering for doing good, unjust suffering is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Not that unjust suffering isn't a gracious thing. Your endurance of it is a gracious thing in the sight of God. God is pleased when we endure, are patient, don't act out in kind. It's a gracious thing in God's sight. God is pleased with us. Why? Verse 21 gives the reason. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. There's that word again, called. With Christ as our example to follow, we've been called to endure suffering for doing good. And in the same way, with Christ still as our shining example, Remember, from the cross, Christ blessed those who put Him there, praying for them, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We've been called to not return evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Plus, when someone does or says something evil about us, we've been called to to take it up a notch and to bless, to praise, to be good to. Those who do evil to you. If you want to know what you're calling, you know, Christians, what am I called to do? Well, here it is. If you want to know your calling in life, here are at least two places to find it. 1 Peter 2.21 and 3.9. You're to endure unjust suffering. But that doesn't sound very fun. And to bless those who do or speak evil against us. That's our calling. I'm not saying it's Everything we're called to, I'm saying, but that is part of it. That is our calling. And what Peter gives, uh, and what Peter, what gives, blah, blah. So the question is, what gives Peter the right to give us this incredibly difficult calling? Well, first, he's an apostle appointed by Jesus Christ, inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's good. But it should also be noted that he didn't create this calling. He's just repeating it in different words. Jesus is the originator of this radical calling for all Christians. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, You have heard that it is said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Okay, that seems reasonable. Brotherly love, a tender heart for my wonderful neighbor. But hatred for my enemy, those who do evil against me, that's, that's our natural inclination. I'm good with that. 
Then Jesus blew people's minds when he continued, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love and pray for, bless your enemies, those who persecute you, those who do and say evil against you. This is our calling from Christ. This is our radical calling that Peter states in his own words. And then he adds an incentive. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Peter seems to be saying that there is a blessing that we receive when we bless those who do evil or say evil against us. And what is that blessing? Well, I think it's found in what follows in Peter's quotation of Psalm 34, 12 through 14. He begins uh, verse 10 in Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, for, so that's connecting it back to what he's just written, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, he's going to go on to explain that, but let's stop, pause there for a minute. So the blessing that we can receive for blessing our evil-doing enemies is a love of life and seeing, experiencing good days. Now, what does that mean? Well, we know it, it can't mean that everything will go our way. Peter has just talked about the fact that, like Christ, we will endure unjust suffering. Plus, the, the context here, by the way, is someone doing or saying evil against you. You're experiencing the evil. Evil is coming upon you. So, loving life and having good days is not dependent on our circumstances. So, what is Peter talking about? Well, I think he's talking about the joy, the satisfaction of God's favor in our lives. The blessing of God, the blessing of God's presence, the blessing of God's work in our lives. Remember chapter 2, verse 20. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. No matter our circumstances, if God is pleased with us, if God's face is shining upon us, if we're receiving the grace, experiencing the grace of God in our lives, then regardless of our circumstances, life is good. We are blessed. And if you say, well, I'd actually prefer to escape these difficult circumstances. I'd prefer if no one was doing or saying anything evil against me. I'd prefer that over experiencing the grace of God in my life. Well, then I'd say to you, you're, you've either never experienced the grace of God in your life, you've never experienced the joy of God's presence, or you've forgotten what it's like. As David writes, So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. Experiencing God's love, His loving presence in our lives, is better than life itself, David says. It's better than escaping the evil of this world. To walk with God through evil is better than walking anywhere alone. David, again, makes it beautifully clear in Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So loving life... 
and seeing good days happens in relationship with God. And maintaining our relationship with God means we, we obey His calling on our life. We respond to our calling uh, found in verse 9 to bless those who do and say evil against us. So Peter continues this quotation in support of what he's written in verse 9. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Don't engage in evil or hateful talk, deceitful talk. Or as verse 9 says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Instead, let him turn away from evil and do good. Peter continues, when you desire to do evil, I know none of you do, but when I desire to do evil, I need to repent, to turn away, to do the opposite, to go the opposite way. Or as verse 9 says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Bless. That's the opposite of repaying evil for evil. That's repentance of repaying evil for evil. He continues, let him seek peace and pursue it. Who do we pursue peace with? Not our friends, but our enemies, those who do evil against us. We seek not to destroy them, but to bless them with peace from God. And then he ends, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Again, do you see the condition there? God is watching us. His eyes and His blessing uh, are on the righteous. For the righteous, those who do right, God hears our prayers. We talked about this last week with regards to the hindered prayers of a husband who doesn't understand, who doesn't live in understanding with or show honor to his wife. The principle we saw is that right, living right, righteous living, living obedience to God helps our prayers. And here we see the same thing. God hears the prayers of the righteous. And he's not just hearing, it's, it's by implication he's answering those prayers. He's responding to those prayers. But the opposite is true for those who do evil. God not only ignores their prayers, but He is against them. That's not someplace you want to be. That's not someone you want to have against you, God. So Peter's quotation of Psalm 34 reinforces, explains what he writes in verse 9. And so in summary, in 1 Peter, verses 8-12, through 12, Peter's addressing all Christians He's telling us, at least in part, what it means to live in obedience to God. Uh, What it means to live rightly or righteously, which includes being united with and loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, having sympathy, being tender-hearted towards all people, having a humble mind, not thinking too highly of yourself, and to put the cherry on top, Righteous living, fulfilling your calling means blessing your enemies. Praising and doing what is best for those who say and do evil against you. And the question has to arise, certainly does in my mind, and I conclude with this, how is this possible? 
Now, I hope we all can see that what Peter has described is humanly impossible. It may be possible, as I said, to muster up the ability to do some outward actions, even actions that look like united, sympathetic, tender, humble, uh, uh, blessing of your enemy's actions. But Peter's not talking about outward actions alone. He's talking about matters of the heart, the mind, the soul, the spirit, and the human heart mind, soul, and spirit on its own is incapable of being the kind of person Peter describes. You cannot do it. I cannot do it. We cannot be it. And once we realize that, that's a good start. We're in a position now uh, to move forward. Once we understand our inability to be and do what Peter, what the Bible calls us to do and be, we can then turn away from ourselves, our power, our ability, our intellect, our mere meager abilities, and we can turn to God. We can see our dependence on God for righteous living. That's our final thing I want to look at just briefly. We've already seen that, that God will bless us with His loving presence uh, for righteous living. But God also empowers us for righteous living. He doesn't demand something from us. He doesn't then empower us to accomplish. Here's the deal. So this is the gospel. Without Christ's sacrificial death on the cross, which not only pays for the penalty of our sins, but empowers us to overcome sin, without the gift of the Holy Spirit, which convicts and helps us to become like Christ, and without God's transforming work, in our lives, we could not possibly have authentic, genuine unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind, and we could certainly not bless our evil-doing enemies. We can only be this kind of person and do these kinds of actions because God is at work in our lives. He's at work changing us from the inside out. He's at work in our heart, soul, mind, and spirit. His work starts, I mean, I don't know, could have started in the womb, I don't know, but there's a definite beginning in the Christian life with our new birth. Peter described it, chapter 1, verse 3, blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because of this, according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Uh, we are first and foremost dependent on God for our new birth. We take no credit that we are elect exiles. God elected us. God caused us to be born again. And it's only those who are born again, who Paul says, uh, who are new creatures in Christ, it's only those that can hope to be what God is calling us and making us to be. So if, so if as we walk through these, those five relational attributes, you might have felt like one or more of them certainly doesn't describe you. I felt that way when I was looking at it with regards to the uh, sympathetic thing. And I'm guessing when you heard that, that you were called to bless those who do and say evil against you, you might have thought, can't do that. Can't do that. 
We can imagine saying, but, uh, but Peter, that's not the way I am. You're asking me to be something I'm not. Uh, that is not the case. I believe Peter would answer, if God has caused you to be born again through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if the Spirit of God indwells you, if you are a child of God, if He's adopted you into His family, if you are trusting in God as your living hope, then know this, this is who you are in Christ Jesus. And as you trust in God's work of grace in your life, You'll become who God has already declared you to be, who God has already made you to be. God caused you to be born again, to be righteous, and He also causes you to live righteously. So we must continue to live by faith in what God says is true about us, even if sometimes it doesn't look like it. That's why we need faith. We elect exiles living and ministering in this world are not perfect yet. But we can trust in the promises of God that He will never stop working in our lives. As Paul writes to the church in Philippi, and I am sure of this, that He who began a good work when He caused you to be born again in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And that doesn't mean He causes you to be born again and then He leaves you alone for your life and then the day of Christ Jesus, He says, okay, now I'll transform them. It means He's working all along to transform you into who He declared you to be when He caused you to be born again. God is at work in you and in me. And we can trust Him to bring about our transformation into the kind of people He calls us to be. He's working in our lives that we might be united. United in mind. Sympathetic, loving, tender, humble people. People who fulfill our calling and, and can even bless our enemies. People who desire above all things to experience the blessings, the love, and the presence of God in our lives. So as you walk through, as you encounter situations and people that make it difficult to fulfill your calling, don't turn to yourself, don't turn to your inner strengths, it's limited. I think you can turn to your brothers and sisters in Christ and ask them to help you in terms of turning to God. That's the place you need to go. You need to turn to Him on a on a daily basis as you see and trust Him for who He's called you to be. As you trust Him for what He's called you to do. And as you understand that only He has the power to enable you to fulfill your calling, turn to Him, depend on Him, pray to Him that you might become who He's called and made you to be. Let's do that together right now. Father God, we come to you and we know we've, just in these two verses, it's five verses, you've given us some pretty, uh, some pretty difficult things, some things that we clearly cannot do ourselves. You've called us to be people that in our flesh, in our humanity, we have no ability to do so. So Father, on behalf of myself, on behalf of my brothers and sisters here, we turn to you and we say, God, God work in our lives. God, help us to, to see the cross, 
to see the example of Christ, to remember all He's done for us, Lord, and, and that would motivate us. That would begin to transform us, that we can be these kind of people, that we can be united and sympathetic and compassionate and tender-hearted, that we could even bless, bless our enemies, Father. I hesitate to pray this, but I ask that, that you would at least, as we encounter people who are saying and doing evil against us, Father, I pray that you would give us the strength uh, to bless them, to turn and to bless them, not, not in a fake way, but in a real way that comes from you. Be with, with us this week as we seek to, to live and to minister in this world. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you uh, today as you're dismissed. And we'll, uh, Sean is actually preaching next week, so bring your friends. No, I'm just kidding. He's preaching on, uh, can I say? First uh, Corinthians 15. So re, re, the, the resurrection, what's the? The gospel of the resurrection. So look ahead, 1 Corinthians 15, and prepare for that.